Morning, everyone. Welcome to 1030 Church. I'm Gavin. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, come and say hello. Uh, let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of Luke's Gospel. And we ask that you may open our eyes to see the majesty of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for those who have prepared the way for this moment. And we pray that we might leave here rejoicing in your Son, our Saviour. Amen. Uh, now, I want to start by asking you how you feel about support acts at major concerts. I know that might sound a little bit tangential. Uh, and, I, and I guess I want to start the conversation by asking you how many of you have got your Taylor Swift tickets? Are there any? Oh, I saw, I saw one hand, and I know that Andrew's hand should have gone up, but it didn't go up. And I'm outing him as a Taylor Swift purchaser of tickets. Uh, I, I want to ask the two of you who have got your Taylor Swift tickets, do you know who the support act is? I said it at eight. Can you remember? No. <laughs> Do you know who the support act is at Taylor Swift? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I do know. I looked it up. It's that pop princess, Charlie XCX. I feel like I have to say that very carefully without sounding too dodgy. Uh, and uh, the New Zealand indie band, The Broods. Now, if you're a Swifty, do you really care about these support acts? Or, or how about this? Do any of you know Adrian Zucat? Or the band King Ibis? They're supporting Coldplay when they come out in a, in a few, I think it's a few weeks, maybe a couple of months time. And it got, gets me thinking about the support acts. Why don't we know about them? And why don't we care about them? Uh, and as we think about the support acts, the last concert I went to was Midnight Oil in Luna Park about a year ago. It was the very, very, very last farewell tour, last, last <laughs> tour. And they kept popping up and I kept going. Uh, I'm sure there was a support act there, but I wouldn't have a clue who they were. And as I think about it, it's because we're there for the main act, aren't we? We're there, there, when the main act comes, oils, oils, everything else fades into the background. And as we come to these early parts of Luke's gospel, I want you to see that so far we've met the support acts in Luke to Jesus. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah were support acts in chapter one. Simeon, who kicked off this series, was a support act when he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Anna was a support act as she came looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. John the Baptist was a support act. He even said he was a support act. The one coming after me is greater than I am. I'm just the voice calling in the wilderness. And even last week, the accuser was a support act trying to distract Jesus from the main act. And so as we come uh, to today's passage, 
It's a glorious passage where Jesus steps onto the main stage and Jesus becomes the focus of all our attention. Uh, Verse 14 sets the scene for us. Uh, It says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Remember that. We'll come back to the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Uh, This is the launch of Jesus' public ministry And 14 and 15 give us the summary that he's on mission in the Galilean area around the north part, the towns there. And then verse 16 focuses in on a particular part of this tour. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth. And immediately we think it's Nazareth. Isn't it Jesus of Nazareth? This was the town that he grew up in. And we're told that on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, by way of background, it's worth remembering that synagogues emerge in the in-between times, the intertestamental period. They especially uh, emerged outside of Israel, where Jews got together to faithfully read the scriptures together. The meeting at a synagogue on the Sabbath was a fairly straightforward word and prayer kind of meeting. Uh, They were people of the book, and so they weren't sacramental in the way they did things. Uh, And a, a normal synagogue service went something like this. They'd recite the Shema together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then they'd pray. And then they'd read from the Torah, the law. And then they'd read from the prophets. And someone would uh, give a sermon on the readings together. And then there would be a priestly blessing if a priest was present or a prayer if not. And so the synagogues were a simple way of Old Testament faithful keeping in God's word. Now, Luke assumes all this for us. But that's what we're stepping into in verse 16. Uh, The scene has three parts. The Christ promised, the Christ fulfilled, and the Christ rejected. So I want you to notice what happens first. It was on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, as was the custom of the Jews. And Luke deliberately slows the action right down so our eyes are drawn to Jesus, who's the main event in the centre of the stage. Uh, Did you notice how uh, we're invited to slow down our hearts as we read this? Jesus stood up to read. The scroll from the prophet Isaiah was passed to him. Yet he unrolled the scroll. He found the place where he was going to read, Isaiah 61, and he read it. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about the relationship between Luke's gospel and the book of Isaiah. And at this point, I want to say, 
in session two, digging deeper of tracks, we're going to spend the whole session doing it. So there's a free plug for myself to say, come and think some more about the relationship between Isaiah and Luke. We're going to explore that. Jesus was in the synagogue that he grew up with. Uh, the people there would have known him. And as Jesus reads Isaiah 61, he's reminding the hearers of the great promise of the Messiah coming. The one who would be anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the rescuer of Israel, to restore God's kingdom. And so these are words that they've probably heard before because they were systematic about their reading refreshing the hearers to keep trusting that God might keep his promise. And the structure of this whole scene makes verses 18 and 19 the focus of what Luke wants us to think about. And our attention is on this Isaiah 61 reading. Uh, now I want to come back to those words in just a moment. The second thing that I want you to notice here is the Christ fulfilled. The second part of the scene uh, builds the tension up for us. Jesus stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled it and he found the place. He read from Isaiah 61. He rolled the scroll back. He gave it to his attendant. He sat down, which was the position of the teacher in the synagogue. And the precision of Luke's language is really slowing us down that as the reader, we want to say, get on with it, Luke. What are you doing here? And Luke says this, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And I think what he says next is extraordinary. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all of them spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to hear the today as a big today. It's not just a today as opposed to yesterday or tomorrow. It's a today which says, here is the season of the Lord's favour. The things promised have been fulfilled in me, in your hearing. Now, that is an extraordinary thing for Jesus to say and Jesus to claim. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's Jesus saying, I'm the spirit anointed one who has come to restore and bring rescue and relief the day of the Lord's favour has come in me. It's an extraordinary thing for Jesus to say. 
Now, the scene could have ended there and we could have said, and they all lived happily ever after. But if you are listening, you'll know that the scene didn't end there. And we see the Christ rejected. Uh, in that same uh, synagogue were people that Jesus had grown up with. And I can imagine the kind of conversations, hang on a minute, isn't that Jesus, Joseph's son? Isn't Joseph the carpenter? How can the carpenter's son claim these things of himself? Now, you'll notice that Luke is very uh, concise with the information that he gives us. Isn't this Joseph's son? How can he possibly claim to be the Christ, the son of God? And uh, doubt raises its head in this incident in the synagogue. Before we hear anything more about what the hearers are thinking or the doubters are doubting, Jesus jumps in and says this, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what you've heard that I, uh, you did in Capernaum. Now we need to stop and unpack what Jesus is saying here. Jesus uh, is challenging them in their doubts. And in their doubts, they're saying effectively, prove it, Jesus. Their doubt has caused them to say, well, why don't you do here what you did in Capernaum? The words already come to us. And Jesus is demonstrating here that he sees into their hearts and that he knows their doubts. And so he says to them, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And so we see the Christ rejected at the very opening of his public ministry. It's going to be a theme that unfolds and escalates and eventually the opposition will see him crucified. So this opening rejection at Nazareth at the beginning of his public ministry really prepares us for his latter rejection in Jerusalem that will see him crucified. Now, Jesus responds to the doubt. Uh, there's other questions we want to ask about what's going on here, but Luke takes us to Jesus' response. And Jesus refers to two incidents from the Old Testament that both illustrate that God's own people will miss out on the favour of the Lord and the favour of the Lord will come to outsiders and unclean and unacceptable people. Jesus talks about the incident of Elijah with a widow in 1 Kings 17. And Jesus talks about the story of Elisha and the lepers in 2 Kings 5. And as Jesus senses their doubt and responds to their scepticism, he says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. 
Uh, we could go back to two kings and see the fullest story. What Jesus is saying, remember that moment when God's favor was experienced by a foreign woman because of the hard heartedness of Israel. And the second story says the same. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. And again, we could go back to 2 Kings 5 and see the unfolding story of Naaman, who had his own journey of being humbled before he received cleansing and the favor of the Lord. Again, what we see is this. God's favor was experienced by an outsider and not God's people. And by putting those two stories together, Jesus was challenging those in the synagogue who were saying he's just the carpenter's son. He couldn't possibly be this Messiah. Well, we want to know more about how that conversation goes. Luke doesn't give us all the details, but he does show us how they respond. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him up to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It's really at this point I want that Will Farrell meme. That escalated quickly. We move from the crowd receiving generously the words of Jesus to the crowd seeking to throw him off the cliff. But in the words of John's gospel, his hour had not yet come and he walked on by and continued his mission in other places to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not until Luke 22 that we read, Satan enters Judas Iscariot that the increased opposition will see Jesus crucified. Well, there's the moment, the Messiah promised, the Messiah fulfilled, and the Messiah rejected. I really want to take us one step further, because as uh, Luke gives us this moment, uh, he's really showing us the program that will unfold in the life of Jesus through the words of Isaiah 61. It's Jesus who brings the season of the Lord's favour. It's Jesus who self-identifies with the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, in Isaiah 61. And it describes the program of his mission that we're going to see unfold across the rest of Luke's gospel. So I want to come back to the heart of this passage in verses 18 and 19, which I've carefully avoided to this point, and hear what Jesus read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And I want you to see that for Luke, this becomes the, the program and the mission for Jesus. And we're going to see it roll out in these next few weeks together, especially in the early part of his public ministry. Jesus says, today, this day, 
Uh, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we see that Jesus identifies himself as the Lord's Messiah. The anointing of the Spirit undergirds this fulfillment. And as Jesus read these words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, we're reminded that the support actors brought men mentioned the Holy Spirit eight times already up to this point. What is Jesus being anointed for? To be the rescuer and restorer of God's people. And as we look at this uh, uh, sentence that Jesus reads about himself from Isaiah 61, I want you to see how uh, it sets up the program for his mission and his ministry. What is he anointed for? He proclaims good news to the poor. As we work our way through Luke's gospel, Luke has a concern for the economic poor. But Luke himself sees that the economic poor points us to the spiritual poor. We already know that Jesus is the content of the good news. Remember uh, the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you and he is the Messiah, the Lord. The good news of Jesus is for the poor in spirit. The humble poor believe, as the hymn says. The good news is for those who don't rely on their own strength or their own goodness or their own deeds, but rely on him who has come to rescue in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, Blessed are you who are poor, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to tell a parable about a man who builds bigger barns at the expense of God and he is humbled for not trusting in his saviour. Second thing we notice is that he proclaims freedom for prisoners. As we look at the life and the early ministry of Jesus in these next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus liberate people. Next week, the very next thing that happens is the liberation of a man imprisoned by an evil spirit. He'll set free people imprisoned by sickness and leprosy. He'll set free people uh, who are uh, trapped by their own decisions and their own sinfulness. Third thing we see is that he offers recovery of sight to the blind. I was glad Emma got her glasses so she could read the songs to sing for us at the beginning of our service time. In uh, chapter 18, we see Jesus uh, give sight to the physical blind as we meet a blind beggar who is restored for his sight. And these are all signs that Jesus comes to recover the sight of the spiritual blind as well. At the cross in chapter 23, the centurion has his eyes opened to the majesty of the son who is crucified and he declares, surely this man was a righteous man. Jesus offers uh, sight to the physically blind 
And Jesus offers sight to the spiritually blind. Fourth, we see that Jesus has come to uh, set the oppressed free. He heals lepers. He casts out demons. He allows the deaf to hear. He liberates those enslaved to death. We're going to see him raise a widow's son to remind us here is the one anointed by the spirit to set us free from sin and death. Finally, in Jesus, we see the one who has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's the language of jubilee in the Old Testament. It's the language of the acquittal of debts and the forgiveness of sins. And through the back half of Luke's gospel, we're going to see how the ministry of the Messiah is the ministry of the suffering servant who will give his life as a ransom for many. Session four, tracks digging deeper in Luke. We're going to look at that. Please come and join me. There's another free plug, Andrew. So Psalms, uh, sorry, Isaiah 61 becomes the program that we see roll out in Luke's gospel for the ministry of Jesus. I think I've heard some people make mistakes about directly applying this passage to the church without going uh, through Jesus as a list of social reforms. It's not less than that, but it's much greater than that. That Psalm 61 points us to Jesus, the main act who has come to bring release and rescue and freedom. So Jesus himself is the content of the good news that you and I are invited to entrust ourselves to. Here is the day that changes everything. Here is the day of the coming of Jesus. Here is the day of the Lord's favour. I want to finish with one more picture. Jesus was crucified with two other criminals, one on his left, one on his right. One criminal shouted abuse like the rest of the crowd. The other criminal had a conversation with Jesus on the cross. And the climax of the conversation, that thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly, today, a theological today, uh, here is the season of the Lord's favour today. You will be with me in paradise. These are powerful words for us this morning that remind us Jesus has come to bring in the season of the Lord's favour, to fulfil the words of Isaiah 61, to liberate us from sin and death, to help us to see and to help us to know paradise. Jesus is the main act. And these words invite our hearts to trust him. As we hear Jesus say, today, these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for pointing us to your Son. 
We thank you that Isaiah's words point us to your son. We thank you that his life allows us to see the majesty of Jesus. And we pray that we may be people who are poor in spirit, not trusting in our own strength or goodness or deeds or achievements, but trusting in the son that you sent to be our rescuer. Thank you for him. Amen.